Now entering the Bitcoin Podcast Network. Welcome to Hashing It Out, a podcast where we talk to the tech innovators behind blockchain infrastructure and decentralized networks. We dive into the weeds to get at why and how people build this technology and the problems they face along the way. Come listen and learn from the best in the business so you can join their ranks. All right. Next episode, episode 10 of Hashing It Out. As always, Corey and Colin here. Say what's up, Colin. What's up, Colin? And today we have Harley Swick from TrueBit coming on the show to talk about how TrueBit is going to help bring computation off the blockchain and scale what we're trying to do here. Harley, you want to uh, give us a quick introduction as to who you are, um, what your role is with TrueBit, what TrueBit is, and kind of how you got introduced to the space as a whole. Yeah, so hello everyone. I'm Harley Swick. I'm a core developer uh, on the TrueBit project. I'm uh, normally based out of Dallas, Texas, but for right now I'm in Berlin, which is pretty fun. So I originally got started as an open source contributor on the TrueBit project, and then they hired me on to do full-time development. I'm a developer by background, so I kind of heard about Ethereum and then got really sucked into the rabbit hole. I also really like Dogecoin, and it's an important point because Dogecoin, I heard about the Doge Ethereum bridge, which is what led me to TrueBit, and so that's kind of how I started working on the TrueBit project. Wait, 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 wait. What, what is that? I actually hadn't heard of that, uh, and why does that relate to True, TrueBit? I, I don't think I follow that, that, that train there. Yeah, it's, it's, um, yeah, uh, so it, it actually does relate. Um, so True is actually originally designed to sort of solve that problem, but there's a couple years back, there was a big bounty to sort of bridge the Dogecoin blockchain to Ethereum. So you could sort of move, um, Dogecoins over to Ethereum and it would sort of be like the Doge would be represented as like ERC 20 tokens. Um, so it's not really like an atomic swap type bridge. It's like um, it's more of like a two-way peg, and so it was this sort of like hard technical. And the bounty sort of sat around for a while, and then some different people, like Vitalik, actually proposed the solution, um, but it was pretty expensive. And then one of the Trubic, uh paper co-writers he proposed the solution to sort of uh, a trubit like solution to sort of solve this problem where you sort of only do they can't let one piece of computation on chain and the rest of it's off chain. And that's sort of like, that was the first sort of idea of TrueBit. Um, and the idea is that you are getting, you're, you're locking Dogecoin tokens into sort of this multi-sig and you have this like proof of the transaction and you have this like serialized data. Um, and then there's an script hash along with that. And you have to sort of prove to this, um, Doge Relay smart contract that you like actually locked up your tokens. And so one part of that proof is checking Escript. And obviously Escript is like the Dogecoin proof of work, so it's never going to fit on an Ethereum smart contract. And so it offloads um, the verification to a true to TrueBit. Um, and so that was actually the first, like, yeah, 
Okay. I think so, a, so, so. a good way to pose this, or at least to start this conversation, is to first let's define what the problem is that TrueBit is <laughs> is fixing, and that's basically doing computation on the Ethereum virtual machine is expensive. And in order to scale into real-world applications, we need to find a way to do off-blockchain computation that is trusted in a trustless exactly. in, in a trustless manner. Now, how is TrueBit enabling this? So, yeah, um, the, the cost is prohibitive, and then you also have the gas limit. So even if you had all the money in the world, you're actually limited by the, the blockchain itself mm-hmm. as how much computation you can do on smart contracts. So TrueBit is used for that. So the way it works is that someone sort of submits what we call tasks, and that includes sort of the code, or if you sort of like with the Doge Bridge, we already knew what the task was, so there was like some optimizations there, so we always knew it was script. So someone sort of like asked someone to like solve this stuff. And we have what's called a solver, and they're the ones who run the computation. And uh, they run the computation off-chain, and they submit the solution on-chain, and then there's sort of this like uh, number of blocks that you have to wait before that task is sort of or solution is considered final. However, there are also other people that we call verifiers um, kind of watching. And if they they will sort of see the task, they'll see your solution and they'll go and check it. And if they disagree, they'll challenge you. And then it gets to sort of into the secret sauce of TrueBit, which is this verification game. And um, so at this point, you know, nothing's been computed on chain. And so you get this verification game, and it uses the verification game, the verifier queries for um, intermediate steps um, from the solver. And it, it, the way it works is a binary search. So it sort of uses binary search to, you know, there's a query response system, and it narrows it down to one step in the computation. And that one step is sort of loaded on chain and run on chain. And because it's like, you know, we all trust the laws of computing, and that's sort of the consensus mechanism is that it computes that one step and sees it sort of like that final output was the actual answer. And if it isn't, then the solver loses. Um, but if it is, then the verifier loses. So you you want to make sure you don't challenge it if you are really certain. So I can so, kind of go into more detail if you want, but that's that's like can I can yeah, I sure. try and see what I got from that? Um, yeah, basically uh, what you're saying is is that there's off-chain computation, which results in some sort of proof or result set. Um, and the, there's a group of solvers who go out and solve those off-chain computations and then submit their solutions to the blockchain. Um, in order for those solutions to be, those solutions are then kind of validated through another group of people who are basically validators, who are basically looking at four of these solutions and then mining them for... I guess mining is not the right word, validating them to make sure that they're correct. In the event that they're not correct, there is a bounty of some type. Is that correct? Um, yeah, it's not quite a bounty. So that it, so incentivizing verifiers is sort of like a whole other story, and I kind of haven't gotten to that. Okay. But, um, yeah, people – so the way you sort of prohibit you know, behavior is that before anyone could participate in the network, they have to submit a deposit – and so uh, if in the case that like you, the verifier challenges um, and they prove that the solver, you know, didn't do it correctly, then the solver is loses their deposit. 
Um, but if a verifier challenges a solution and they go through the whole verification game, and it turns out the solver was innocent, the verifier will actually lose their deposit. So to sort of prevent, you know, dosing. Then this, this brings up an issue for me. Maybe not an issue, but I mean, it's, it's a problem you're going to have to solve or it limits the scope of how far this can go. And that's, it seems like a lot of potentially redundant work to make sure people are doing things trustlessly. Um, because someone does the, does the computation, they then submit the result. Other people redo the computation and to see if they got the right result. If not, they then verify it to make sure they don't lose their own deposit. And, you know, this continues. So I'd imagine as if this were to scale, you know, completely, the, the amount, there's not going to be enough verifiers to do all of the computation that's being done on the network. So you just hope that the incentives are aligned properly, or you hope that if you are cheating the system, you're not in the sample size that gets verified. I mean, or I guess you just have subsects of people who care about that result that will spend the time to redo the computation. But if that's the case, why didn't they just do the computation in the first place themselves? Well, there is one other way. You can make it so that you can't be a solver until you've verified to some degree, um, which would mean you'd have to wait the probability that you verify something. But that, I'm not really sure. How, how does that balancing act work? Um, yeah, so maybe there's some confusion on like where the verification kind of comes in. So like, Verifiers are never like forced to challenge anything. They're just sort of like, if they want to, you know? Um, and so with the Doge Bridge, we sort of assumed we had altruistic verifiers. And so certain, you know, the Doge Bridge doesn't really like, wouldn't probably have like that many, you know, transactions going through. So like, you can kind of assume that you could get away with it. Um, but we, but yeah, you're right in the terms of like, you need enough verifiers to be checking all the solvers, because if there's too many solvers and not enough verifiers, then you have like a chance of um, people sort of submitting fraudulent solutions. Um, however, you can sort of toggle it. So, you know, you, you the task givers, well, the people submitting these tasks, they can, as a parameter, they can set the number of blocks that they want to wait before a solution is sort of finalized. So if they know there's like a heavy load on the network, they could always just, and they want to be really certain about the security, they could always just sort of extend that number. Um, another solution is that you can sort of have pools of people. So you can have people sort of only looking to solve like low um, low compute tasks and then maybe pools of people looking and that's sort of t uh, filtered by how big your deposit is. Um, and then you can have pools of like bigger tasks. So there's, there's sort of a number of ways of doing this. Um, I could go into the incentivization. So there is sort of like a probabilistic kind of way that you can make sure you can get like enough incentives or verifiers. And this is in the Sugar White Papers, we sort of call this the incentive layer. Uh, and what it uses is, so there's this sort of forced error mechanism because and verifiers, like most of the time, people won't be cheating. So like verifiers don't have a huge incentive to sort of go and check everyone. But what we do is we sort of, probabilistically uh, enforce this thing called a forced error. So the solver is like required to submit a incorrect solution. Um, they don't necessarily get slashed, um, but the sort of the task is to get like, done again. But, and this is to sort of make sure that you're checking the verifiers. Um, and so the verifiers will see this sort of forced solution, but they'll just think it's like um, not an incorrect solution and then they'll challenge. 
And what they get out of this is what we call a jackpot. And so if they if they have challenged this forced error, then um, they get uh, a piece of this jackpot that's like held in reserve. So there's this sort of probabilistic means to like uh, make sure that people are sort of verifying as many tasks as they can. I see. So basically, if a verifier verifies something's correct and the solver is correct, it's a neither of them lose any money. There's no bounce here. There's no gain to be had in that. But right. in the event that a verifier finds something which is happens to be a false solution that's intentional, meaning that the system actually has a built-in falseness to it, and they verify that that false solution, um, they basically mined a new. It's essentially similar to mining in that they've discovered something that was randomly selected. And um, as a result of finding that randomness, they they hit the jackpot and so they they get incentivized for finding this kind of random behavior, um, which is what keeps the verifiers uh, moving on the verification network and incentivizes them to go forward. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And if they if they don't, you know, see any sort of wrongdoing, then they won't challenge. That's that's sort of how it works. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's basically if they if they if they submit a challenge, they get penalized. So they're you know they're only going to challenge things that they know are incorrect, which makes them verify all kinds of things to check for incorrectness. That's interesting. The the, the force falseness is what truly makes that work. Where does the false falseness come from? Because you can't execute that falseness on a on the blockchain can you can't create a false solution automatically doesn't there have to be some solver which decides they're going to inject false falseness into their solution and as a person who is putting computation on this network how would i differentiate my answer from an intentionally false answer from you know a non-intentional answer if that makes sense yeah, yeah, so that's a really great question. Um, so the way we do it is that every time a solver has to, because the solver doesn't know beforehand if they're doing a forced error or not, so they submit two solutions. Um, and it's kind of a commit reveal scheme. And so whenever they submit the solution, they don't really reveal which one is the incorrect one or, uh, or correct one. And then um, there's a period where people go and challenge, and then they sort of reveal which one they uh, they believe was you know the, the solver reveals which one they said was the correct one and if a um, you know verifiers if it happens to be a forced error and the verifiers did challenge the forced error then you know they hit the jackpot um, otherwise they won't you know uh, challenge what they were doing. Who's paying for this jackpot? Um, so yeah, the jackpot initially has to sort of like get you know, there has to be sort of funds raised for the initial jackpot, but there's also sort of taxes that we um, give. Um, whenever task givers sort of submit tasks, there's a little bit of a tax. And then also if when people, so we don't actually give bounties to the verifiers um, or people who get slashed, we actually just move the money into the jackpot. Oh, okay. So that's, so, go ahead. That, that, that's, this brings up the next question. What data set size are we kind of limited to here? How much computation limits are there on this kind of system? Um, how are timeouts determined if, say, I put a very computationally complex problem out there? And um, how can I verify that it goes to somebody who's going to be able to solve it in time? Does it, is, it a, is, it a, is it literally like, let's say I, I'm a user of Truebit and I publish a really computationally complex problem onto the, onto the system? 
with a very large data set. And I want somebody, I want to give somebody two days to churn this information out and the code to do it. Um, how do I know that it's going to go to somebody who can accomplish it in that time period? Yeah, so we, we actually have our sort of own uh, quote unquote gas and sort of gas limits. And so the task giver, you know, submits sort of the gas limit that they're willing to pay. Um, so there's the gas limit that they're willing to pay. So that sort of gives you like a bound at, as to how big the task is. And then they also submit the timeout. And so a, like, we're still kind of working on this, but the idea would be like, you know, all of those parameters are public and, you know, shared. And so when a solver views a task, they'll sort of take that into that in consideration whether or not they feel those parameters are fair. Um, in terms of data set size, that sort of goes into like a whole separate problem. So like you can't submit data sets on chain. So then you have to submit it off chain, but then you get into the data availability problem, which is like really crazy and not solved yet. So we've sort of been that. Um, so data sets is sort of like a whole separate kind of realm, but like, with like the Doge bridge, you know, the, you don't need a very large data set, but there is still like a high compute because it's running like a proof of order mechanism. So at the moment, we're sort of limited by how secure the task we can do because of the data availability problem. Well, you can't solve everything at the same time. And that, that's it's solving off-chain computation in a, in a, in a at least probabilistically fair way is a step forward, which allows you to solve some types of problems until other solutions come forward with like things like data availability, maybe in another way. Yeah, because I see one way I could attack is to basically, let's just say you require an IPFS address to pull down the data set. Um, I could pipe infinite amount of data to that IPFS address. Because <laughs> like, there's no sizing necessarily associated with that. Yeah. So somebody yeah. pulls that down, I could literally just say, oh, yeah, you're looking for this IPFS address. Well, guess what? I'm sharing that. And here's an infinite amount of data uh, basically sucking up their bandwidth, um, which doesn't matter in certain cases, depending on your system, but in other cases where they're on metered bandwidth or they're in a country like Australia where the bandwidth is metered, that would be kind of problematic. Um, so, uh, I mean, I would guess you'd also have to put in bandwidth limits and th those kind of constraints into the, the TrueBit system for that. But, um, yeah, no, I, at the same time, though, I look at this and I go, this is like a step in the direction that we need to go. Um, you're gamifying the act of computation in such a way that it really should be able to grow into an incentive model that, um, that, uh, that, that could scale. Uh, one of the one of the things that we mentioned on those previous episodes is when I have some sort of like it, when I had some conversations, which initially um, described this system, is we compared it to is um, map makers used to inject uh, fake streets into their maps, so that if somebody were to try and copy their map, um, they could uh, they could um, they could basically say uh, which one is the the fake the fake street on this map, and then basically prove that the the map was their original territory because they could actually their original creation because they could actually point to that fake street. Does the true bit system all uh, know what that fake street is, or do you have to actually just kind of go through the act of proving it every time? Um. Yeah. So the the map making sort of thing, I guess it goes back to sort of like being in same classification of like interactive proofs. Um. Because like with the map maker, you could sort of like prove like there you would need some kind of like verification game of like who whose map it is. Um, I'm not sure how the map solution would 
Um, I, play it's not, in Detroit, it's not necessarily the same problem. It's yeah, but it is still in the general classification of interactive proofs, which I'm like super interested in. And Truebit is sort of like only one drop in the interactive proof bucket. And there are a lot of really cool interactive proofs that like use verification game like things. Um, and there's a whole body of literature on this that like people haven't really tapped into. Like everyone's really into zk snarks and like non interactive proofs. Um, but you know, working on Truebit and sort of like reading Wikipedia of like these interactive proofs, I think they're really simple and yet really powerful. And like the map maker thing that you described, it, it I feel like you could describe it as an interactive proof. Um, yeah, for also that that's just in, that's the thing. It's like when I was first told about Truebit, that was kind of like the analogy that was used. Um, it doesn't sound like it exactly applies, but it does. It's it's, it's kind of interesting in that um, it does open a whole new way of thinking about how we can actually do some of these, um, you know, scaling problems going forward. Meaning that, yeah, like you said, everybody's focusing on these you know zero knowledge proofs and stuff like that. Um, I think uh, there's there's two different things here that I think. So I, the the map analogy works well with the injected falsification, the, inj the injected yeah. untrue part. Yeah. The interactive proofing doesn't quite apply there. Can we talk a little bit more about how someone like actually verifies that the solution that you gave is the correct solution by looking at the like the binary tree search and doing that one kind of computation. Yeah. I'm a little fuzzy on that. I kind of want a little more clarification. Yeah. So, I mean, so with Truebit, so I think maybe where the map making didn't quite apply is because Truebit is very much like centered around computation. And, you know, you can sort of verify that they did the right answer by going and downloading the code and running yourself and see if you get the same solution, right? So, every, so uh, that sort of limits what kind of tasks we can do is they have to be deterministic tasks. They can't be, you know, non-deterministic tasks. So that, that obviously... But you know you can you can literally just go run the computation, take a hash of the solution, and check the hash that like you know the other person submitted. And if the hashes are the same, then you know you don't challenge. So we, we sort of leverage the laws of computation um, as our sort of consensus. Yeah, what about sense. what about statistical errors in computation? So like maybe like a you know, computational error or something like that. There has to be some threshold of accuracy that you're looking for because say, for instance, if I'm doing scientific calculations where I end up with some number plus or minus some number based on convergence criteria, someone else doing that and taking a hash of that result isn't going to be the same. So how do you deal with something like that? I mean, what is the, what is the criteria for, for correctness? Is it a hash of the actual result, depending on what type of computation it is? Or is it like this plus or minus something? Or like, how does that work? Yeah, so that, that's a really great question. Um, so we do, so we just use hashes. So everything is deterministic. However, you know, our backend is WebAssembly. And this kind of leads back into that. Um, the WebAssembly spec doesn't, specify how like computers are supposed to do floating point. They sort of leave it up to the machine for optimization. And that's a problem for us and sort of any uh, blockchain system that's wanting to use WebAssembly because that's a source of non-determinism. Um, so because it's, you know, floating points, like you mentioned, like plus or minus difference. Um, so that's pretty consensus breaking. There are, um, so we recently just published a Truebit VM spec with like a couple solutions to this. Um, one way is to sort of emulate floating points as integers. Um, other ways is you can sort of like canonicalize um, 
a floating point. And so that's kind of the different solutions. I mean, the most basic way is to just sort of emulate floating points with integers and then you sort of get deterministic compute. Um, but yeah, so blockchain solutions and floating point numbers don't exactly uh, go very well together. Um, I think the other thing is that with floating point stuff, like scientific computing, you can kind of get away with like just running it again. So maybe TrueBit isn't sort of the system you want. Um, you can sort of run it three or four times and get an average, and you, you can sort of accept that. Um, I can see that. Yeah, um, so what about running in sort of like a more contained environment than, um, than just WebAssembly? Um, so you've got kind of a VM wrapper that sandboxes the computation around, you know, just the WebAssembly. Um, does that sound reasonable? Um, so we, so we, you actually use a deterministic WebAssembly interpreter. So that's, I guess, sort of sandboxing it. Um, so we, we actually modify the WebAssembly spec um, a little bit. Based All on right. that, um, what type of, problems are you looking to solve at least initially until something like that can be handled appropriately like what is what is the problem set that TrueBit wants to go after or thinks there's a market for um in the interim of solving something like scientific computing and or, or like floating point operations um yeah so for now we're just using sort of the floating point emulation so i guess if people did want to do scientific compute they could just you know, sort of accept that, and I, I think that should work. Um, so the first milestone is to actually integrate with Live here, who are doing um, video transcoding, and we're actually using the floating point emulation to sort of solve this, because, you know, video transcoding sort of has, like, floating point numbers and stuff mm -hmm. like that. Um, so that's, like, a problem, because, like, you can't obviously check video transcoding on a smart contract. So that's a... Uh, we're using that. Um, the Doge bridge is sort of an example, and I mean, you could use that for other types of bridges as well. Uh, we, we just verify escrits, so like if you wanted to bridge Litecoin or stuff like that, I mean, there's mm -hmm. really nothing stopping you. Um, the other thing, so we're sort of hanging out here in the Ocean Protocol um, office, and they do, they're really interested in like big data and sort of like computing. Um, and token curated registries around data sets. And so they have some interesting applications. Um, they want to do some type of compute around bonding curves, and they use this sort of like what they call trapezoidal integration, and they're having issues. Um, so that's sort of, you know, uh, the trapezoidal integration formula gets around this sort of like floating point issue, um, but they sort of can't really... It's prohibitively expensive for them to do this on chain, so they're looking at using TrueBit. Uh, I know people have, so the Plasma white paper actually mentions TrueBit, so you can sort of check, um, you know, verify fraud, fraud proofs, uh, fraud proofs exactly um, with Plasma. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's it's a scaling solution, and so uh, actually we were talking today with someone they wanted to do. They wanted to build like a, a Ready Player One game or something like that, and they wanted to be able to check that you like actually unlock some achievements using TrueBit. So that was kind of an interesting um, example. So so only yeah, a subset of their computation get it put published to your system to verify that a user did some specific thing, but not necessarily not necessarily go on a blockchain. 
I, I'm sorry. I think I may have missed the first part. Yeah, it's, 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 if you're making like, if I was making a game and I wanted to make sure that somebody did something, but I didn't want to overload a blockchain with all the material, I maybe only wanted to do like maybe token transfers of, of value on a blockchain. I could offload that computation to a system like Truebit to verify that what happened with that particular user is good while not overloading a blockchain, and then all other type of renderings and such can be local or who cares, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Oh, and that also reminded me, so batching, so like sort of batch, really large batch transactions. So um, the Gnosis team approached us about solving that problem. Um, Aragon, um, they need to sum up votes. So, you know, you can, you know, (laughs) uh, so that was like, and or voting that was like more complex than just sort of like adding things up, but also it's related to cost. Um, so yeah, there's, there's sort of a handful of different things I guess you could do. Um, the main thing with Truebit, so it, it's sort of, we get a lot of like, how are we different than Gollum or like, how are we different than I, yeah, I, I test it. Yeah. So the real big difference and like, even sometimes like our team will forget this, but like Truebit is not meant like, not to say that Gollum and Isaac aren't solving hard problems, but like, it's fairly easy to get to pay someone to do a computation. Um, you know, on the blockchain, you sort of just send the money and you just get the result back. Um, but what's difficult is being able to, you know, trustlessly check whether or not that computation was correct. And so that checking aspect, that's what Shubit was designed to do. I feel like that's definitely the the initial push of Truebit was we're starting with interactive verification and seeing what we can do with it, which happened to be off-chain computation because that was necessary at the time and, and still is. Whereas Golem wanted to say, we just want to somehow find a way to incentivize off-chain computation. We may worry about verification later. Maybe I got that wrong with them, but it, it seems as though that seems that that's what's going on. Yeah, yeah. So I think like with the rendering, you can sort of just like run it a couple times. And if you're like DBA from like the average, you like, you know, you can get slash. I, I don't quote me too much on that, but like with rendering, you can sort of get away with like sort of less deterministic solutions. Um, but yeah, with Truebit, we're sort of we want off chain computation, but with like blockchain like properties. So um, once again, this- the Doge Bridge is a good example because you know you don't want to probabilistically mint all these new Dogecoin tokens and like break the the Dogecoin. <laughs> so. is, is this is this a system that can be automated from a blockchain for instance like say if you had some type of a uh, zero knowledge snark voting system that needed to add up all of the the computation all, all the votes which is a which could potentially be a computationally expensive task that you don't want to do on a blockchain could some smart contracting system automate the submission of this computation to Truebit and then react on the answer or does this all need to be um, user driven because I could I could see Golem being good for doing MapReduce type problems uh, submitted by user because they clearly they just don't have the access to cheap compute resources. But if you can automate the process and have some type of verification game along with it, I could see that being a completely different use case along, uh, outside of what they're capable of doing. Yeah, so um, we so the way you submit tasks is like via a smart contract. So I mean, and we don't really specify who's calling it. So as long as the other smart contract like has the correct data and is able to just like access it, um, obviously with smart contracts, it's you know sort of I use like the vending machine metaphor. It doesn't really do anything until you put some coins in. So 
Um, obviously, someone has to kind of like poke it to get it to do something. But yeah, I don't, I don't see any reason. And at least in terms of automation, we don't really distinguish between people and smart contracts using our system. So I have a question here from uh, Ori Steele, since you had mentioned this earlier. Ori oh. Steele, do you know Ori? We were just talking to him, actually. Oh. Yeah, he, he's been contributing to our project. Yeah, he's he's a friend of mine um, from Austin. He's uh, he's with a company called Transmute Industries. They're doing some some great uh, uh, work right now. Um, the uh, he actually asked me to ask you um, when do you plan on getting the WebAssembly um, uh, when is WebAssembly demo into the TrueBit OS? Yeah, so I actually just started a web the WebAssembly client um, in TrueBit OS today. Uh, I'm hoping to get it like in testing mode in a couple weeks. So sort of like ready to demo. Um, there's obviously like a lot of kinks to work out and our WebAssembly VM isn't um, 100% complete, but in terms of like integrating it with TrueBitOS, I'm hoping to get it done in a couple weeks actually. So, Can you? So what do you hope that will enable um, some of this Web, WebAssembly work? Will we be able to operate, like we'll be able to have web browser interface to, to TrueBit? Well, it's not really web browser interface. It's more of a, so we only want to build one, you know, we don't want to build a whole ton of true bits. So we want to sort of target a standard. Um, and WebAssembly is uh, a really good standard for computing. So, you know, it's like you have, WebAssembly can be used outside of the browser. Um, so it's really more an like an instruction set architecture to sort of target or like a platform for us to target for more generalized compute. and. So with WebAssembly, you can like use um, a tool called mscripten, and you can compile. Right now, you can compile C, C++, and Rust, so non-garbage collected languages, into WebAssembly. And so people will be able to write their tasks in all sorts of languages that they want. And um, I guess as WebAssembly adds garbage collection, you need to maybe even get it in other programming languages. So that was really the idea behind using um, WebAssembly. Well, and this is kind of, kind of, I'm kind of going into idea mode. So a major problem that a lot that a lot of uh, let's just say pub publishers, for instance, web publishers have, is that people are ad blocking their ads, and so one of the solutions they had is they could do something where if the ads are blocked, they will mine Monero in the background. Could they do something similar because you're using WebAssembly, monetize their websites through lending the unused JavaScript cycles to do kind of off-chain compute calculations and um, actually make that a, a method of, of distributing content by anybody's browsing content. It's also lending their computing power to the publisher of that content. Yeah, so I guess you could potentially solve the task on, in the browser. Um, and a lot of people brought this up. Uh, I'm because we sort of have our own specialized interpreter, you wouldn't, like if you got challenged, you would have to offload, you would have to use our interpreter anyways, and you wouldn't be doing that in the browser. Um, but it would be a good validator um, system, uh, way of scaling validation tasks, meaning that solvers, solvers, I mean, don't seem to be where the big incentive is, is that correct? Um, it would actually be invalidating where the jackpots come in. Yeah, well, solvers are getting paid by the task givers, so they're they're getting right. paid exactly. to do the computation. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So it would probably be more advantageous to 
focus validators onto a system like that, where you're actually taking advantage of scale to find the larger jackpot? Yeah, yeah. Um, I guess you could be like using other people's browsers as like zombie computers. Is that sort of what you're referring yes. to? Yes. So okay. right now, like for instance, if somebody has a there's 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 actual libraries out there where if somebody has a um, a ad blocker on your site, let's just say your uh, USA Today. I don't think they're doing it necessarily, but you have an ad blocker on the site, then this library kicks in. And what this library does is it mines Monero in the background. Um, so it's a way of, incent- of building incentivization into websites, which it doesn't even have to have an ad blocker, to be frank with you, where you're actually doing mining on people's sites while they're browsing your site. Uh, it's pretty transparent and it actually isn't terribly com- computationally complex, but most people don't know it happens. Um, and I'm thinking, okay, so we got this TrueBit thing and it's, it's great, but how do we make sure that it has the scale that we need? And there's a couple ways that I think about that. And the, the best way I thought was to get it in the browser. And then it was like, oh, well, you're using WebAssembly already. We could also use this to solve another problem and that content publishers aren't getting published, uh, aren't getting paid for their published works. Um, so you see sites like, Wired and Times, uh, New York Times getting um, doing all these different you know ways of uh, forcing people to either pay or incentivizing their um, their content. I'm like, okay, well here's this here's this system that has an incentivization model built in, similar to like the basic attention token. You can actually decide to lend resources that are pretty much unused on the systems already um, through the web browser and actually use it to validate. Um, things that already exist in the TrueBit network. Yeah, that's not a bad idea. I, I mean, I don't see any reason why someone couldn't build build that on top of TrueBit. Um, yeah, I guess that makes sense. You sort of have all these different browsers running computations, and if they find that something's not, or they they get to, they don't even have to check whether it's right or not. They just need to run it and then send the results back to some, for lack of a better word, the mothership, and then the mothership mothership sort of. Uh, checks those results and then they can challenge whether they want to or not. Yeah, that, that so makes sense to me. Ideas are coming out of hashing it out. So, uh, <laughs> the, the point I'm trying to get here is that there's there's that when we want to, when you see a technology like this, um, it's easy to focus on kind of like, oh, well, how are we going to get to scale? But there's a lot of things that something like this solves. A lot of problem sets that this is just applicable to that. Um, you know, you don't need to focus just on scientific data alone. I mean, there's people who need the scientific data solved, but there's also problems out there that are on the other end, meaning that there are people who want to monetize their extra computing resources or even monetize other people's extra computing resources in the terms of a browser. And when you have a system that is decentralized and you have the ability to lend your resources to another cause that are otherwise going unused, we have a way of actually distributing load and, and, and monetizing that distribution of load that didn't prior, uh, previously exist. And that's why projects like, like Truebit and even Golem are, are really, really interesting. Um, and that's why I'm excited of it, you know, that you guys are doing the work that you're doing. Yeah, that's a really good point. I sort of never really thought about it that way. I guess I had been thinking about you know, if people, even with the transition to proof of stake, there will still be sort of the need for like large compute. Uh, because of like things like TrueBit or things like Gollum and stuff like that, uh, in, like in a peer-to-peer fashion. Um, so sort of the same lines, but not. I hadn't really thought about you know 
people sort of swapping out Monero miners for TrueBit validators. That's I feel like that, it would like, be nefarious. The better hardware that you have, the better the system improves in general. So people like Verizon, for instance, when they sell you phones, these phones have an upgrade plan. Well, you could also lend some computing resources on your phone and improve your data. If, for instance, Verizon was able to capitalize on the fact that you have improved data because you're not using your phone all the time. You're not using your data all the time. So this is another way to meter, um, un, you know, uh, wireless data plans, um, but also provide a benefit to the customer in that on demand, when they do need it, they can stream Netflix. But when they're not streaming Netflix, Verizon can also be doing things like sending you validator data. So you can actually, they can actually monetize some sort of the compute resources. And in addition, since that, they, that system would from an improved compute resource, um, Verizon would be incentivized as a business to improve their customers' devices, um, meaning that they would want them to have cheaper and easier accessible devices in mass across the globe. This also lends itself to IoT. So IoT devices are small, thin, distributed devices that can do some extra calculation, but a lot of them are not going to be working 24-7. When you have something like TrueBit in the world and you're actually able to validate these computation on these devices, um, then you're able to incentivize uh, IoT network in a way that was never that never existed before. In fact, you can even use it to validate the computation that's going across an IoT network. So I'm really excited about a project like TrueBit. This is this is kind of one of the keystones, like one of the first principal projects that we'll need in order to build a truly decentralized economy. Yeah, totally. That's why I joined on the project because I thought it would push the space forward. But yeah, you're totally right. Uh, there's all this unused compute resources and, you know, using projects like TrueBit to do it. That's really cool. It's a really good idea. So can you describe some of the projects that are currently other, you, you mentioned like Aragon and stuff, but what kind of internal testing have you done? What are, what is, what is the progress being made on this? Um, you know, how's funding going on this? What's, what's the, what's the project momentum looking like? Yeah, so um, we have a really small development team at the moment. Um, so, and we've haven't even really been working on it for more than a year. So we're pretty in like pretty early stages. Um, we have made a lot of progress. Um, that being said, and that I'm very proud of, um, our funding stuff is sort of like ongoing, and our incentive layer is sort of still in a research phase, and that's sort of like related to that, obviously. Um, so that's been, so I can't really say like too much on that, but yeah, we're still, we're just chugging along. And I guess right now we're sort of just looking for, you know, more people to contribute. And hopefully once TrueBit OS gets like ready to go and we sort of do the live here demo, I think it will sort of show people and make it easier to understand. And I'm really hoping to get more contributors to the project. Yeah. So what kind of contributors are you looking for and how, like, uh, how can somebody get involved? Like, where's your point of entry um, for in getting involved with the TrueBit project? Yeah, so we have, um, you know, we have our GitHub. So that's obviously, like, if you're developing, that's, like, where to go. We have a wiki. We have, you know, several repos. Um, the wiki sort of is an overview of, like, all the pieces. And then we also have our Jitter, uh, which is a really great place to ask any questions. Um Obviously, and then um, so that's pretty much. So we're just an open source project, and that's how I got started. Uh, we're the we're on one hand we're looking 
and engineers, so people who know about WebAssembly and know how to sort of like build these systems. Uh, unfortunately, WebAssembly is very new, so there's not a lot of people. So like pretty much Parity and um, I think Mozilla has most of the WebAssembly experts in the world right now. Um, and then also just people who are interested in like you know solidity and stuff like that. So just just um, I would say those are the two things. But we sort of have one guy. Um, Named Sammy, and he's the one who developed our most of the WebAssembly infrastructure. Like he actually wrote so one piece of us, like our system, is a WebAssembly interpreter in written in Solidity, and he he actually made that. So it's a pretty big achievement. Um, but yeah, we need we need more Sammys in the world, right? And then uh, people like me to sort of make this stuff easier to use and um, more user friendly. That's kind of my job. Yeah, and like at, at, you know, education is still of of this you know ecosystem so um i'm glad to have people like you on the show because that's that's exactly the, nobody people will are want to learn about this stuff but they don't have their their discovery is still a big problem and then learning how to break in is a big problem so i'm, I'm really glad that um you had this opportunity to talk about TrueBit. so overall what's yeah. your what's your take on the uh, decentralized ecosystem at the moment are you uh, are you uh, are you happy with it what projects are you interested in and what are, you, what are you excited about other than TrueBit going forward? Yeah, so I mean, I'm really kind of excited about the governance stuff. I was like pretty hardcore anarchist in high school, and now like this stuff is sort of reigniting that. Um, in terms of other projects, uh, obviously scaling. I've been saying that 2018 was sort of the year of scaling. So that's like kind of the biggest things for me. Um, other than that, I've been pretty, I was like, been pretty heads down. Um, like people sort of say, like once you start developing, you sort of like stop like looking at price and sort of other projects. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's a lot of really cool projects out there. Um, I guess like OpenMind is a pretty interesting. So like I, I have a background in machine learning, so the machine learning projects are very interesting to me. Um, kind of scary because like then they sort of have their own autonomy. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I just sort of want the space to move forward. And so I think scaling is sort of the biggest thing that's holding back in, like, the data availability. So shard, actually, I would say sharding is kind of one of my favorites. I think I think uh, my prediction is that once we sort of have sharding, or Ethereum has sharding, that um, people will be able to experiment with these experimental features on these shards. And so, like, all these sort of new sort of EVM chains that are coming out, they'll sort of get swallowed up into these shards and... I, I, I'm a really big believer in sort of the winner's win, um, and we'll sort of see this whole ecosystem sort of like getting kind of swallowed up with these different shards. And on the one hand, it's sort of, I don't lack a better word, centralized because it's like one system. But the other hand, because of all these shards and they're all sort of doing different things, it's sort of like um, fragmented, I guess, for lack of a better word, and but in a good way. So. Yeah, and then also sharding is sort of solving some problems around data availability. Um, so yeah, being a developer on TrueBit, data availability is sort of the biggest party mover for us. So anything trying to solve data availability, I'm really excited about. Sort of like Filecoin, I guess. Um, they're they're looking to solve it. So. All right, that's a that's like it's a, it's a great addition to what we've created so far on hashing it out and the conversation we're trying to build on uh, what people are doing to enable these these next innovations in the decentralization space 
and like off-chain computation will play a large role in that. And doing that in a trustless way is difficult, but I think Truebit has a novel way of approaching it that could work out and scale in a lot of the ways that we talked about and more that we don't. So um, once again, thanks for coming on. Is there any any way that uh, you'd like people to reach out to you if they'd like to or, or where they can go to um, learn what they can do to help contribute? Yeah, so I mean, I, first off, thanks for having me on the show. I, I love spreading the word about Truebit and sort of telling people about it. Um, but there aren't really too many places. I guess just our GitHub and, you know, if, check out our code and post issues. And I, I try to be very responsive. Um, pull requests, always welcome. And any yes, sort of questions. Uh, we do have a Slack, but it's not quite open. So, but in terms of development, I think it's better to go to our Jitter. Cool. Awesome. Well, thanks, man. I appreciate you coming on. Yeah, well, thanks for having me. Um, yeah, have a great rest of your day. Yeah, you too. And uh, for our listeners, you can always catch us on Spotify, iTunes, any other podcasting app. You can find me at, at @corpetti on Twitter, Colin at Colin Couchet on Twitter, and the podcast at Hashing It Out Pod. Um, if you want to get a hold of us uh, through texting, you can just join the Bitcoin Podcast Network Slap Slack. Go to the BitcoinPodcast.com. And click on the Slack button to get an invite. Other than that, talk to us. We'll talk back. Thanks for coming on. Yep. Thanks, guys. Bye.